Hello, welcome to Small Talk podcast episode. I have no idea. <laughs> Tristan's here today to answer a very, very interesting question. I actually bumped into Tristan on the street one hour ago. He's been away for three months and just got back to Berlin. And I said, how is it to be back in Berlin? Because I love Berlin and I thought, I thought it was like an automatic, hey, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> and he said, you want to you tell us what you said? Challenging. Challenging. Challenging is the word. Challenging. Being back in Berlin is challenging. So today I want to talk about what it's like, what Berlin is like integrating into Berlin and mm. why maybe some people love it and some people don't love it. Let's start by introducing ourselves. I'm Ben. Um, I'm the host of Small Talk Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the best party in Berlin, Spazi Party. Look it up on Instagram. Uh, Tristan, yeah, really, it's about you. At Clapper City, Clapper Full Stop City, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> um, yeah. Hi, I'm Tristan. Been living in Berlin for, for six years. And I met Ben, I don't know how long ago that was. Painting the house, painting. Painting Leland's house. Leland, who yeah. was also on the podcast. Um, Leland was on the podcast, but the story is really good. We, Leland <laughs> needed to paint it. He moved into a new place and his place was a disaster and he needed to paint it. And he kept saying like, okay, next week I'm going to paint it. Next week I'm going to paint it. Next week I'm going to paint it. And I said, Leland, man, you have plenty of friends. <laughs> just, <laughs> just tell your friends you're having a party at your place. Get some pizzas and then uh, get some paintbrushes. And when everybody shows up, just like, just, it was, just tell everybody that it's like a painting party. And he actually did it and made an amazing breakfast. And, uh, and we painted his house. That's how it got done. And that's how Tristan and I met because Tristan was another victim of the paint party trick. It's a scheme. It was a scheme, actually. Yeah, yeah it was a good idea. <laughs> and it was fun. Like, it was actually really yeah. fun. I actually, like, I, I think I arrived just in time for breakfast. Like, had, it was, it, he was slow. So we had breakfast for two hours or something. And then I had to go after 30 minutes of painting. But, uh, but Tristan finished. So. I bet, honestly, I barely painted. I was there for the food, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> but his house got yeah. painted, yeah. So, and, and, I, and I got to meet Ben. Exactly. It was yeah. Man, destiny was. <laughs> destiny. Yeah, so that, that, that's when we met. Um, yeah. I think you should also talk about your... Yeah, so yeah. in order for people to get to know you, you, you definitely should tell them about the card game, about mm. the things that you do. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm doing a couple of things. Been in Berlin for six years. Um, I quit my job at the end of last year. I was working in tech, pretty hardcore, um, as a chief of staff, American company, raised money, the whole thing. And I decided to quit because I was feeling too much pressure and burnt out. And I realized I was really just in it for the money at some point <laughs> and very little sense of drive and purpose. And um, since then, what I've been doing, um, I went back to Malaysia to kind of re reunite with the family. Uh, traveled in Japan in January to to see new things, to get just new inspirations. Um, since I've been back, I've been spending my time coaching tennis and working on a project called Project Closer. Um, it's a card game that started out of my and my co-founder's fascination with questions and the power that questions can have to help you unlock the right conversations and help you heal and help people around you heal. Um, we found that it's often the things that we don't talk about other things that need to be talked about. And sometimes it just takes a question. <laughs> so we've been making this card game, been selling them. I think we've sold 50 or 60 decks at this point. Still very much a startup-y vibe. Um, but since I've been back, that's, you know, been spending more time doing that and 
we've been hosting meetups as well for people to play the game. And it's just been incred incredibly powerful um, and a very healing experience. I have really been enjoying working on it. Um, but it's also, the questions also mean that I reflect a lot. <laughs> Um, and just as the highs feel super high, the lows can feel super low. Um, and I'm learning a bit about less identifying with emotions as being who I am, but rather things that sort of just pass through. Um, but in practice, that can be quite difficult. Yeah. Tristan, he, he invented this game where... Frank, you little... Frank, come here. <laughs> if you're watching the video, this is Frank. Frank is a one-eyed pug <laughs> who's currently having a spastic attack. Frank. Okay, 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 okay. We're here, we're here, we're here. Just chill. Frank, have some respect. Hi, right, Frank, you're out. You're out. <laughs> you had your 15 minutes of frame, bud. Oh, poor guy, dude. He just, he just wants some love. Yeah. Okay, just hang on. Just hang on, Frank. Frank, you gonna chill? Cool, okay. <laughs> yeah, Frank. Frank is a great dog who I'm looking after for two weeks and he stinks, but I love him. As I was saying, Tristan invented a card game um, and each card has a question on it and you play in a group and you ask the questions to each other in order to get to know people. Mm. Um, and I was there for the launch of Tristan's card game. Mm. And we played the game and you almost cry. Like you, it's crazy how quickly you become intimate with complete strangers just by asking some questions. Frank, you... Frank, no, you don't push him. Frank, you're Hmm. It's crazy how close you can get to complete strangers when you ask them questions. And let's see. Ooh, another thing that I think is important. Oh my God. Another thing that I think um, is kind of important and maybe relevant is that you are, is where you're from. Hmm. Where are you from, Tristan? So I was, um, I was born in Australia, in Perth, um, but I'm Malaysian by now. Well, actually, I have an Australian citizenship as well, but I grew up in Malaysia until I was 15. And then I lived in the States for two years for high school and then went to university in Italy for three and a half years and now I've been in Berlin for six years. So I think I, I'm technically from Malaysia, but I really grew up and spent time growing up, I think in, in quite a few different places. Yeah. Frank. Frank, you're a character, man. Dude, this, the tongue is like going everywhere. <laughs> Man, it, please, if like, if you're listening to this on Spotify, turn on the video and look at this guy. Look at Frank. <laughs> Frank is the real star of Small Talk Podcast. All right, Frank, if you can chill out and be quiet, maybe I'll let you chill for a little bit. Probably not. 
Tristan and I were talking before this about how cruel human beings are for breeding animals that that look like Frank. Yeah. Cool. I mean, we, I'm pretty sure that we've created pugs by like taking a brother and a sister who had really small noses and then making them have a kid and then... Frank. And then, yeah, and they're so like inbred and they have breathing problems and health problems and so so many problems and he smells all because it makes us laugh what a cruel world we live in but it's a good thing tristan that people like you are out there trying to help us build connections to one another and trying to make the world a little bit better even though there's people out there turning perfectly good wolves into a into creatures like Frank. Frank also had cancer and got an eye removed. So he's got one eye and his tongue is paralyzed. So he, um, is it? it's like always out of his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Frank. All right, Frank seems pretty chill. So I guess we can, we can continue. Frank, are you going to keep trying to steal the show, man? Yeah, he's trying, Frank. Right, so Tristan's game, where were we? Before Frank bust onto the scene. Um, yes, we were talking about where you're from. Hmm. Um, and I think that maybe that plays a role in how you feel about Berlin. So today what we're talking about is the question I asked Tristan which led to this, this discussion about Berlin. And the thing that I remember that Tristan said was, it just doesn't feel like home. And so I want to talk about what Berlin is like, hmm. um, about what makes a place feel like home, hmm. maybe about the difference between Berlin and whatever places you have felt like were a home. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your routine in Berlin? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think since since I since I left my job at the end of last year and I've been back in Berlin now, it's a lot of it's it's not very regimented, but there's a there's a kind of an idea of what needs to be done each week, and that's splitting time between um, working on closer the card game, um, exercising, either going to the gym or playing tennis or running, um, and just like general free time, meeting friends or working on music and. Yeah, it's, it's a bit more freeform these days um, than when I had a job, like a full-time job, yeah. Okay. And do you think that, like, what, what do you think the things are in this routine that you have that contribute to your feeling of feeling like you're part of the city? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think the, the, the best thing about Berlin for me is it's like, I always describe it as like a Petri dish and anything can grow just absolutely anything um think because it's a city that is so supportive of um of artists and people that want to create stuff um through you know having a good social like a a good unemployment benefit system but also having like unemployment benefits for artists and people who just want to be creating but don't make that much income um i think combining that with the fact that it's also pretty low cost of living considering it's a it's a big capital city 
I think that just that's really like really fertile for um, letting almost anyone build almost anything. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely something that I love about Berlin is that I feel anybody can come here with an idea and really try to make it work. And that's, that gives me a lot of inspiration. Mm. Um, but do, do you think that, I mean, for example, do you think that quitting your job affected your social life in a way which affected your feeling, feeling about the city? What do you think it is that would make you feel at home in one place and not feel, mm. feel at home in another place? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I think different things. I think it, for me, what I'm kind of missing right now is a sense of belonging in Berlin. Mm. I don't, and for me, that is quite closely tied to feeling at home in a place. Um, when I go back to Malaysia, for example, um, it's very familiar. It's where I grew up, so I understand how the routines can work, I understand how to deal with public administration, I understand the kind of food options I have, or I understand like how my way of life could be. Um, and that create, can create a sense of belonging. Um, for Berlin, the part that exists, which, which I really love, is the freedom to kind of do anything. And for me, that's very expansive. It makes you feel like almost anything is possible. On the flip side of that, um, because almost anything is possible, I feel like it's hard. I find it difficult to kind of craft a route and craft a, um, a little tiny, um, you know, a, <laughs> a, a tiny piece of like what home in this kind of boundless possibilities is. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, I think what creates a sense of belonging, I think it's um, familiarity, routines, a sense of community. Um, and also, I think the part that I'm missing is kind of, since I come from Asia, I just miss being around Asian stuff, <laughs> like Asian people, Asian food, um, Asian mentality of certain things. You know, coming, I was just in Japan and I love how meticulous everything is. I love how much care is put into the way toilet paper is folded in the toilet or like the way things are cleaned and looked after, the way it's the mentality of how, you know, things should be made to last and you should take care of things as if they should last for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, that for me speaks a lot to the way I'm trying to live my life. And I think in Berlin, it's, it's way grungier and way, way more um, free form, kind of like, well, let's, let's kind of do anything, which is beautiful in its own way, but it's also quite different to how things are, for example, in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting because when I was in Japan, I hated <laughs> how clean everything was and how I didn't hate the cleanliness. I just hated the association I made with cleanliness and uptightness. So I, I, feel, I felt that it's nice that everything looks perfect and it sounds like the city is quiet. There's no trash anywhere, but... I felt like I couldn't talk to people. Um, I felt like people actually ran away from me, strangers. If I if I needed directions, mm. you know, I like walk up to a stranger on the on the on the public transit. Nobody speaks. Everybody's on their phone, and I feel like these things are. It's very difficult to separate them. Mm. Um, and maybe that has something to do with our different like perceptions in Berlin, right? Because I'm clearly a very 
I'm a very chaotic person, probably, and I would definitely trade friendliness for cleanliness. Mm. Um, I the experience of bumping into you on the street is like the reason that Berlin feels like home for me. Mm. Um, and so I'm really curious to hear like what. I mean, obviously, bumping into me on the street for you isn't enough to make you feel at home, even though, you know, we love each other. Um, it's it's you need more than that, um, and yeah, I'm I'm yeah yeah. It's it's the the point the point of this is like for me to put myself into your mm. head, and um, and to really get a feel for. If if this is a solvable problem, or if if like if you can put out to people like, hey, these are as somebody from where who is from where I'm from, these yeah. are like the things about Berlin that just won't click. Right? Mm. What do you think it is? So I think I mean I've been thinking a lot about general happiness in life, mm -hmm. um, and for me, um, there are two or three things that are important. Um, one is to be fearless, um, to be fearless in the things that I, for example, try to do, if that is to move to Berlin, is to be fearless in that, meaning not to hold back and not to be afraid of, not to project like a future of why things might not work out and to just do it for the for the sake of doing it. A mm. um, second thing is to be witnessed. Um, so to witness, to be witnessed, meaning, I use the word witness specifically because I think it's quite a powerful term for people to see you for who you are, to be seen. But I like witness because it kind of implies that you're being witnessed by a greater, greater crowd and stuff. Um, and the third thing, which I don't remember what it is, uh -oh. um, but I would say it's also linked to community, which is linked to number two, which is, which is witnessing. So for me, like Berlin, it takes a certain part of that community box, like bumping in, like that's the kind of stuff I love about Berlin. I love about our neighborhood. I love about the free form, the free flow of how things can be in Berlin. Um, it's important for sure. And that's like a big reason why I'm still here, you know, bumping into people and bumping into people who are like doing stuff. We're trying to make things happen. Um, you create a bunch of stuff. You are trying to put your kind of like, I think the things we create are basically like the truth that we're trying to put into the world, speaking our own truth through things we make. And I think you, you do that really well. Um, so that kind of stuff inspires me. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I think the part that's missing for me is, it's like, it's just this, this, this feeling when I'm, for example, not the only Asian person in the room. Um, for me, that has an impact because sometimes I feel like I need to hold back or I'm portraying a certain, I'm, I, so I have a lot of, I have a lot of confusion between like my identity because I was raised in Malaysia but pretty much lived in outside of Malaysia for almost half my life mm -hmm. at this point. And it's quite recently I've actually started using my, my Chinese name. So my full name, my name is Tristan Lim, but my full name, my legal name is Tristan Lim Yang Jun, which is a name that my, uh, my grandmother gave, gave to me. My brother has a Chinese name as well. Um, and I started feeling a lot of pride using my Chinese name in the last two to three years that I've like intentionally written that down. I used to be, I used to hate it. Mm -hmm. I used to just like, no, I don't want to be associated to having this Asian side of me because 
for me to integrate into Western society or to, I, I kind of wanted to be more Western than I wanted to be Asian. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. really, that's really common. I, I, I think a lot of people who come from immigrant backgrounds and who come from migration backgrounds are familiar with that feeling where you, especially when you're young, you just want to fit in and anything that marks you as an outsider, you kind of push away. And then I think you get older and you come more into yourself and you realize that, Hey, these things are beautiful. These are mm. things that make me, me. And as soon as you start to cherish those things, you also realize that other people cherish them and it was mm. just in your head all along. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that is a very, very, it's kind of like a sad thing that you can't take advantage of when you're young. Um, I never even like my, my dad told me that I was so embarrassed of my Nigerianness when I was a kid that I wouldn't speak to him in his language and now I can't speak his language. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, there's so much stuff that I wish I could tell myself as a little kid, like to cherish, to be proud of my heritage, to be, you know, to be patient, to be kind. Yeah. That's actually, I want to do another podcast episode about like things you tell yourself as a young person. Mm. I think that's going to be a fun one. Do you but, but yeah, but it sounds like the, the, a really, really big aspect of not feeling at home in Berlin is not seeing people who look like you and not being able to identify, like not having, not being surrounded by people who identify with the same culture as you. Mm. Right. Yeah. I think just as we're speaking about this now, like I, I've spent like, you know, I left Malaysia when I was 15. So I haven't lived in Asian country for like most of my adult, like my whole adult life essentially. And I think I've lived in Berlin for six years and I've been saying that I've been complaining about it for six years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's only recently coming back this trip, I've decided to just try to be more accepting of the city and just stop fighting this feeling, but letting things arise. And um, that's helped me be more settled. And I told Ben earlier, I was like, you know, I describe it as challenging and that's okay. Like it's, it's actually okay if it's challenging True. and that's, that's just how it is. Um, and I think actually my desire to leave has just come from this, this to create the sense of belonging for me. I think it's, I haven't tried living in an Asian country. That's actually something I haven't done in my adult life. And I think that is where this desire to kind of leave Berlin is coming from just cause I don't know what it's like. Yeah. yeah. I, and I, I totally support that actually. I mean, you were talking about how much you love Japan and I would say, try it, dude, like go, Oh, live in Japan for six months and be sick. I'll hold it down for you, Berlin. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll be, be, I'll happily welcome you back when you realize that Japanese people are crazy and you miss us. But, uh, but you also, also mentioned something which I think is really interesting, which is in general in life, the balance between being challenged and being comfortable. Mm. Right. So you've accepted Berlin for six years because it's never really felt like home, but there are these aspects of it, which help you to grow in a way that you want to grow. Right. Yep. And so maybe that's being able to start a business. Maybe that's making friends with complete strangers. Um, maybe that's learning to try to feel comfortable around people who don't identify with the same culture as you. Mm. And Oh, and figuring out how much in life of that you want is so, so, so hard. Mm. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's about experimenting, right? It's just always exactly, about, about trying. And I mean, there's, there's also this, this idea that things that don't feel comfortable for you, you should kind of just like peace out and don't do them. Yeah. 
I half subscribe to that. Yes, I think is, yeah. I think you need to trust your body and and you know if you're staying in a job but you're like wow this sucks and I'm suffering and I'm not sleeping well. That's that's quite severe, I think. Yeah. But I think there's some challenges that are worth sitting through. This is this is saying like that goes um if you don't know what to do, just wait. Mm. Just see what happens. Um just be calm <laughs> and good things take time off often. Um so it's not really at the detriment of like your physical health and your mental health to such an extreme. Um, I think it's important to sometimes just wait it out and to be to be calm and like, okay, this is how it is. Cool, maybe we move on. Yeah. Frank, man. I can't wait to listen back to this and see how, <laughs> how annoying hearing Frank's But he's sleeping really soundly. Bread inbred breathing sound. Is on the mic. That's what you guys are hearing. I have, I have, a, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you, you were rejecting your Nigerian-ness? Because the people around me were European and I wanted to be European, like I wanted to fit in. For sure. I mean, I also blame my dad because I think as a parent, it's your responsibility to realize that kids are stupid. And you have to force them to do some things. And now that I'm older, I have more sympathy for my dad because I realize, like, I realize how his upbringing didn't prepare him for realizing the importance of teaching me his culture. Yeah. Um, my dad, like, never left his country until he met my mom. He was, my dad's life is crazy. He, he, um, he spent, he grew up in a village and then at one point was sent to another village, uh, to live with his brother, mm. because that's something that Nigerian families do. They send one kid to, to live with, um, they, uh, they said, they, oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> Hope it balances. They, um, yeah, Nigerian families, they send the old, they send younger siblings to live with the oldest sibling and like help with work, help around the house. And so my dad went from like growing up just in his little tiny village, I don't know how many, a few thousand people, like just knowing them, only knowing this culture. And then he got sent to the other side of his country to live with his brother. And then he had exactly the same situation where he was also in this like very, very small community with just this particular um, uh, Igbo is the name of the tribe culture. My dad is Yoruba and then he went to live on the other side of the country. And he then learned a little bit of English because he couldn't speak the language there. Mm. And, um, and the reason that he was able to, like that him and my mom fell in love is because of this funny thing that he spent a little bit of time with his brother, learned a little bit of English and he could communicate enough with my mom that they, they hit it off. <laughs> um, but until he met my mom, like he had, I don't, he probably never saw a white person until he met my mom. He had no exposure to, to Western culture, to anything. And in his growing up in his culture, there was no, there's no culture of like trying to educate kids to, um, to take over the world, you know? Yeah. Um, that's a very Western thing. I think like, yeah. you know, all the parents I know who, who, can speak a language, they, they try to give their kids that language because they think that it might be an advantage in the future. And the way my dad grew up, like, 
you have kids in order to help on the farm. The kids are, they just, you just have them to help the family. And the idea that you would prepare them for them going on and doing something later, that's like completely foreign. Mm. Um, and so my dad, like, when he was, you know, when he, my dad, my dad was 28 when he had me and he would have never, he would have never thought that it would be important for him to like force me to speak his language in order to, in order for me to then 30 years later, you know, mm. have a, be happy. Um, and yeah, so it's not his fault. I mean, it's, he says that I didn't want to learn when I was a kid, um, which is probably true. Um, and I can, I, 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 like, if I think back about how I was when I was a kid, I can definitely see myself, like, acting like I was embarrassed about my dad's language. Um, and I think my dad would have been sensitive to that, too. Um, I think he was even a little bit embarrassed of his culture because he felt like he was a poor kid from the village amongst all of these, like, sort of middle-class Europeans. Um, yeah. Um, how did we get here? What were we talking about? Just, yeah, I think the... Honestly, I mean, at this point, it's kind of like the, the challenges of, um, I think, being a parent, you know, because you, you have so much responsibility. Um, and you also have the, the chance to really shape the worldview of your, of your kids. Mm. Um, and I think the way I like to frame it is like, our parents, I mean, for the most part, like, they were surviving. They were trying this mentality of, okay, what's the basics <laughs> we exactly. need to get done? Yeah. And for our generation, for everything that it is, it's really this idea, okay, cool, we've survived, we're here. How do we thrive in this generation? Yeah, this is such a crazy different mentality that we have. I mean, we don't, we can take for granted all of the basics. We know we're going to be able to eat. We know we have a home. We have the support of our families. And that has made us so entitled. Mm -hmm. um, in Berlin, another funny thing about being in this Berlin bubble is I notice that people are really, really interested in um, exploring things like their trauma, you know, like doing these really deep dives into the things that they don't like about themselves in order to understand where they come from. And it's very popular in Berlin right now to see a therapist and then to explore the things that happened to you when you were small, which led to you being who you are now. Mm. And, and I think as somebody who grew up kind of second generation in between, like the culture, the survival culture of my dad and the, um, and the more thrive, everything is okay, white culture of my mom, I feel like when I look at people who are um, spending time and money seeing a therapist and, and trying to take steps back into their lives to figure out like, okay, um, okay, my relationship with my, with my family as a young person like led me to not be trusting or my family, yeah. Um, I, I get this kind of like, gut reaction where I feel like, actually, your life is really good. Um, I, I, I feel like I think about the people I saw growing up, the poor people I saw growing up, who 
didn't have enough to eat, who were malnourished, who were sometimes like, you know, they, they, they in, in Nigeria, there's so many people who are missing a limb or something because something bad happened to them when they were young. They didn't have access to medical, you know, um, to the medical services that we have. And they, they don't spend any time thinking about their traumas, really. It seems like they're just, they're always moving. And maybe that is a negative consequence of this survival necessity, but it's also, it's, it's like sort of perspective. It, it, it gives me a sort of perspective, you know, where, where I feel a little bit, I, f I feel when I sit there and I try to, and I blame my mom for the fact that I'm, that it's difficult for me to be confident in myself, or I blame my mom for my lack of confrontational ability. Mm. You know, my, my, my mom is, is, my mom is who she is. And I feel like I inherited this, um, this people pleasing for my mom that I have. And then when I think that I also shame myself because I, I'm like, dude, there's people with like, who don't know their moms. Um, and the idea that I would consider that to be a handicap, that my mom, who was always there for me, like loved me so much, like worked her ass off to make sure that I live, live the good life. Like when I, when I, when I'm like, yeah, but she could have, you know, she could have been a little bit um, more of an asshole sometimes to people because then that would have taught me to like stick up for myself. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm like, fuck, like, where is my perspective? Um, I think, I think in, in general, there's, there's actually no, there's no benefit in, in holding blame. For sure. In for sure. Anyone, any good. Yeah. Um, and, I've been, I just recently listened to a podcast um, with Gabor Mate, um, who talks about, um, <laughs> who talks about the idea of generational trauma. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> oh, Frank, you're out. One sec. Peace out, Frank. Be right back. I think, yeah, so... Essentially, I mean, what, what, what he's saying, Gabor Mate, was that Trump, like, we have genes that we inherit that might make us more likely to, to be a certain way um, in terms of characteristics. But ultimately, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you have this gene that's, for example, more likely um, to make you be a certain way, it's actually, if the cycle of trauma never gets broken, i.e., you know, we never heal from the trauma our parents are carrying from their parents, this just perpetuates, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we'll just continue forever and forever. And if we think about it, like two or three generations, you know, our parents or our grandparents, they went through some like, it's a different world back then, yeah. you know? Like my, my grandfather was fighting communists in Malaysia. He, he experienced people getting their heads chopped off in front of him. And he's never seen a therapist. He's never reconciled those experiences. So obviously that gets passed down to my, to my parents. Yep. And then that, you know, filters its way down if there's no healing done. But I think we, we all have the ability with, with therapy, with help, essentially, um, to heal, to heal that trauma, to reconcile, to understand what was going on. Um, and I love that. This is one thing I love about Berlin. I think Berlin 
because it's a society again i think the, the marriage between like having the coexistence of um artists people willing to to seek and speak their truth through different mediums plus let's say people who are not normally doing that this intersection actually is what is really beautiful because on one side you have people speaking their truth and building things through that on the other hand you have people who maybe are not doing that so much and that creates a discourse that creates the dialogue that creates the willingness to like see different ways of living and actually try to experience that um i think that's <laughs> i think that is that's also like the beauty of berlin for me like and why why i really i cherish being here um, despite it being challenging you know people are accepting of therapy basically and people and are, people are seeking yeah people are are, are yeah trying to explore um frank sitting on the mic people are trying to explore these generational traumas yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no people i think people are definitely trying to explore that i i get i just get this I get this feeling inside me that people are looking for something to blame um, in a way that I don't always feel is productive. But, yeah, I mean, I think good therapists, number one, they try to get rid of you as fast as possible. Okay. Um, they try to not yeah. keep you attached to them and needing therapy for everything. Yeah. And I think they try to wean you off over time. That's For me, that's what I think good, good therapy, that's what therapy should be. Yeah. Um, And I think the second thing is like, I think, you know, good therapists are also ones that remind you that you have the answers. It's about you. It's not about any advice anyone can tell you or they might be able to give you a bit of clarity. But ultimately, this comes to you whether you want to actually heal or whether you want to hang on to things. That That is that is something I'm experiencing a lot when I was saying earlier, like about these highs and these lows. For me, the lows is when I feel a lot and I try blaming stuff. I'm like, oh, Berlin, like, it's so grey. All this dirt on the streets, there's people shooting up, there's people um, fucked up all the time. And that, I let that get to me. I'm like, well, that that just means, like, I don't feel good here, so I should leave. Mm. Um, but I mm. think the... Yeah, that's also, I, there's also a good point that there's, that some of that blame is right. I mean, seeing people, daily seeing people shoot up, seeing people who are suffering, it has an effect on you, for sure. Yeah. That, that's and, yeah. and general that, tra generational trauma has an effect on, on you for sure. Um, yeah, and I, I think I, I did. I had this realization literally two days ago as well when I was listening to this podcast with with Gabor Mate, where it was yeah. like, why do we do drugs? Why do we? Why are we addicted to the things? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it is actually generational in a way because either we experience that firsthand through our parents being alcoholics, so we kind of inherit that mm -hmm. because we we see it all the time. Or it's through ways of, let's say your, you know, your parents were physically abusive to you. Mm. Well, you need a way to cope with that, mm. and that's going to be through drugs, alcohol, what, whatever your vice is going to be. Mm. And so, in a way, that is also generational trauma that is being passed down, yeah. just in a different shape and form. Yeah. And I think my insight was that why I think I get <laughs> triggered when I come to Berlin, especially when I experience um, people being addicted to things and people kind of being in the Yeah, just just like that. I think it's because it's not because they're doing this act in itself. I think it's because you can kind of see the suffering through the generational trauma because they are shooting up on the streets because 
yeah and i think it's actually this this deeper insight to like oh shit okay this this is tough this is just heavy stuff i think that's that is one of the reasons why i also come back to this topic of sense of belonging like it's i come from a pretty privileged like background and i think seeing that often it's just i'm not used to that um and i think that is also what's been difficult for me mm. um you know yeah yeah we definitely have to get back to the topic of belonging in berlin but i think there's a lot of there are a lot of side of tangents here which are kind of interesting mm. i also think that there's basically a spectrum of people and one end of the spectrum is this i don't care what's wrong with me i don't care about anything that i can't change i'm just thinking about the next step that I can take. You know, I'm just thinking about today. And then the opposite end of the spectrum is like, I want to explore everything. I want to know everything and kind of this paralysis by knowledge, other end. So on the one end, you have people who do everything and don't know everything, don't know anything. You know, they do everything and they don't care about why anything works. They're just doers. Mm. And then on the other mm. hand, you have knowers, which are people who like they don't really want to to start anything until they have all the information until they have all the information and probably the 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 right way is somewhere in the middle <laughs> the word right is silly but um but yeah i i guess everybody lives somewhere along the spectrum and i think i know that i'm much more on the doer side i'm like yo i don't care if 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 I find out why it is that my personality is the way it is, it's not like I'm going to be able to go back in time and change those things. So fuck them. And that has its consequences and it has its benefits. Um, like and, um, so the consequences I would say are that I have like, I don't know that much about myself. Like it's, it, I find it difficult to, sit and explore what's going on with me. Like I don't, I, I especially don't make any patience for bad feelings. Like if I start to feel sad or if I start to feel frustrated, mm. um, I don't hold space. for it. I don't have any space for it. Mm. I'm like, Hey, the only way is forward. So I'm just going to do things until I forget about that. When, when did you realize that? Why have you always known that? I just realized it right now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the free therapy session yeah uh but the benefit of being like that is that i get a lot of stuff done and i tell myself that the things that i do bring me happiness sometimes they do but i think there's also there's a little bit of weakness in that like i need to prove to myself that i'm worthy by doing things mm. whereas potentially if you go to the opposite end of the spectrum and you spend a lot of time understanding why you are the way you are, then it also gives you this lightness mm. and this, this, you know, you don't blame yourself for things. You can be like, Hey, I am okay. Um, and I don't know if I can sit there and say to myself, like, I am okay. I, yeah, I definitely can't actually, because I, for example, if I don't wake up every day and run, if I don't, show up for work if I don't uh, like my sense of satis my, my sense of self-worth is attached to all those things um, and I guess that that's the consequence it's the like woke consequence of being a don't think but do you know I think 
quitting my my job last year um it helped cement this idea that we are not the things we do mm. you know you are not like yes you host podcasts but like that's not you mm. you're also not the guy who um who runs every day that's not you you are a part aside from the things you create mm. you know nothing really belongs to us you don't own this mic this you have it here now but like who's to say that that's yours yeah when i die it's not going to be mine anymore for sure i wonder if frank is like more things that he does there frank is sniffling down on the ground there but i think it's pretty powerful dude like what you said i think that is that's how a lot of us feel right like there's if yeah. what happens when the music stops yeah and i think that this is because we have immigrant parents who are so far on the do end of the spectrum right. that they've imprinted that on us like they had they were dealing with like a lifetime of emotional issues and their parents lifetime of emotional issues and their parents parents lifetime i mean i think that our our parents who immigrated or come from immigrant backgrounds they um there was no space in their growing up for talking about how they were feeling um they're just like succeed and if you don't succeed you failed um and so i feel like that is probably something that is very common to people with Im immigrant backgrounds is this connect this this feeling like you're only worthy if you get stuff done that your parents are proud of you know um what what would you like to feel more fuck this is like crazy therapy man <laughs> what, would, <laughs> fuck. What, what would you like to feel more settled with um i'm actually i think i have stockholm syndrome i'm like i love my prison what is your prison my prison is this feeling that i have to do a million things in order to be happy and feel worthy since, um, since day one like someone didn't I don't know when that happened. I guess, like, if I if I think back, it's most connected to, like, my failures. So playing basketball in high school, that's when I first started to feel like I'm not good enough. Um, and when I think back to that, that's when I activated this mechanism where I'm like, okay, I'm not good enough, and so I'm going to work so hard that, I don't know, I don't even know what the end of that sentence was. I'm just going to work so hard that they can't that, ignore you, maybe. Nah, I'm going to work so hard that I don't feel guilty about not being good enough. Um, I'm just going to, yeah, if I fail, it's not going to be because I didn't try. What is failure? Failure is not being good enough. Failure is like other people not, is not being praised. Failure is not like reaching a level where I compete and win against other people. So again, back to this podcast with Gabriel Mate, he, we actually, he actually talks about this idea of failure as well. So I have a question for you, which, mm -hmm. which they talk about. If you run a race against Usain Bolt yeah. and you come second, mm -hmm. is that a failure? Mm, is that a failure? I think that, like, I want to say that it's not a failure, that it's lovely. I mean, the fact that you were in a race against Usain Bolt says a lot about 
you know, what you've done in your life. Um, but the world cares a lot more about Usain Bolt than the person who lost their race to Usain Bolt. So it's difficult to to say that it doesn't matter, like to say that it's not a failure. Because the world kind of gives you this validation of this idea that winning is associated with worthiness. So for you, you know, being that person who came second in Usain Bolt, like where does your value come from? Is your value from running the race? Is it from not being on the front page of of um of, of newspapers? Like where does that value come from? Where does that value come from? Fuck, this is very, very difficult to answer. How did we end up here, man? We were talking about fitting in Berlin and now we are talking about whether we are worthy. I think, yeah, I think it's like, where does our value come from? You know, what do we, do we, is it, I'll give you an example just from, from my own experience. Like when I was working in, in that tech company last year, I thought I was, I basically got my value from the fact that I was joining a company that just raised like 50, 60, I think $60 million, you okay. know, and it was pipped to be like, one of the companies that's gonna really make it big. Okay. And I was joining super early, so I had all these things that were like tick, 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 okay, I'm gonna join a, I'm basically gonna be in this specific race, the race being working in tech yep. um, for this very specific role. Yep. I was like, okay, I'm winning. Yep. I'm, yeah, cool. <laughs> I'm taking the boxes, I'm winning, this is, this is awesome. Um, it's only after being there for what, a year and a half, I'm like, dude, these tick boxes, these, the grade, the, the, the rubric <laughs> for, for this, this is just, um, it's all signal driven. It's all based on what kind of signals I can then send to the rest of the world for, so they can perceive me. It's what I can write on my LinkedIn profile. It's what update can say, hey, I just changed jobs. I'm joining this company and people can see that it raised a ton of money and I'm, you know, I'm probably making a bunch of money as well. So it's good signals for me so people can perceive me in a certain way, i.e. I'm winning, you know, but man, when it comes down to it, like we need to really be questioning like how much of what we're doing is to send the right signals and how much of it is actually for intrinsic value and meaning and helping us lead a more purposeful and happier life. You know, we can't be trapped in our own, we can't be trapped by other people's expectations or the world's expectations, you know? That, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of just answered a very, a question that I wanted to ask, which is, do you think that everybody has this has this pulse of the victim to the same thing? Do you is it a human thing to look around at the people around you and then compare yourself to them and then call yourself a winner or a loser based on these signals that you're talking about? Mm. Or is that something that that we do because we're broken? I mean, what, what is human, right? Me having this insight, I'm human, so this yeah. is also human. Yeah. Um, but I think that... So again, referring back to Gabor Mate, he has a book called The Myth of Being Normal. Can I get interrupt to give you a hug? Oh. I'm glad we did this. Spontaneous. <laughs> yeah. 
Go on, go on. Yeah, he has this, this book called The Myth of Being Normal. Okay. And I've never, I haven't read it, but he talks a bit about it on this podcast. And it's just the idea of like what we define as normal is, is shaped by a society that is layers and layers of decisions made by a lot of corporations, essentially. One of the things. And I'll give you an example, which is um, he, he tells the story of this is woman just gave birth. The child is crying. Popular advice is you shouldn't always attend to your child when they're crying mm -hmm. because they need to develop a sense of yeah. independence. independence. Right. Um, what Gabriel Mate says is that, no, you should actually pick up that child and nourish it and give it what it needs and remind that child that, hey, you are safe. Yeah. You know, you, I will be here for you. You are safe because those early years are so important for just general development of, of us as humans. Yeah. Um, but again, the norm is that we don't do that. Yeah. So if you take that as just one example, yeah. this, you can replicate that to many things. Yeah. But we I think that's it's normal yeah. and not normal. That's a super example. Yeah. Um, I would definitely agree. I think that as a parent, like the strongest thing that you can do for a kid is just make them feel like they're the fucking best. Unconditional like, love. Exactly. It's unconditional love because from there you can do anything. Um, and probably so much of us spend our lives trying to impress the parents who we felt like we could never impress when we were young. Which comes back to those moments, the moments when you, you wanted your parents' attention, you're crying, yeah. but you're, they, for whatever reason, either they're busy or because yeah. they were told not to, they didn't give you that love. Yeah. And that ties also very perfectly into this generational trauma because they have the same thing. Like they've been conditioned to believe that they can't give that love because that love weakens, you know, and so then it just passes on and on and on. And yeah. That's, that's, and, you know, I give you an example of someone who I believe received a lot of unconditional love. Um, my friend Emma, she is, she is by far the most boundless person boundless people, one of the most boundless people I've ever met in my life. Mm. She is a ball of energy. And when, when you're just in her presence, it's like, this person was loved as a mm. kid, you know, she is fearless and she just lives life so, so passionately, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you can just see that people who, who, people who, who just are so boundless with their love and so unwithheld with it, like they often have, experience deep love in their life yeah um i yeah. notice just for myself like when i'm when i'm down and i don't love myself I, I it's difficult for me to show love to others um because i i'm not okay for starters yeah um so it's difficult to even yeah to, to show that externally yeah. in a pure way mm. um mm. tying back though into this cultural thing yeah i feel like when i think of parents who just show unconditional love and raise their kids the way I would say it's a great way to raise your kids, like give their kids super unconditional love and then raise like really wholesome kids. I think white middle-class parents. Why? That's what I'm asking. Like, I somehow feel that, that that is the culture that matches that. That is the, that's the stereotype that matches that, parenting style and any other like kind of immigrant or any other colored person is more of like this hey kid you're a failure unless you um 
unless you achieve this, which comes out of probably not having as much, you know. Um, if you if you immigrate somewhere and you feel like you've always got a chip on your shoulder, you have to work twice as hard just to get to half of where everybody else is around, then of course you you project that into all of your relationships. And... Um, and I, yeah, I guess I, you can kind of think of it as a... Um, let's just... This is not scientifically proven, but I'm just assuming that, let's say it takes three generations or four generations of living in the same place and building wealth to feel stable. If you're starting as an immigrant, you're starting from step one. Yep. You need to go maybe four or five you know, to reach that yep. so-called stability point. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, obviously most... The, the people who were the colonizers were, were the white nations. Mm. Um, so they've been accumulating this wealth for a longer time. Yeah. So they've had longer time to reach that point of stability yeah. so that it's not only about uh, providing food and the basic necessities. You can then start focusing on the emotional development yeah. um, because everything else is more or less sorted. Um, but obviously, yeah, we're starting as immigrant parents um, who left their country to find better opportunities and yeah. then it's... Yeah, it might be this lag time essentially. Um, yeah. It also that also reminded me of this phenomenon I've experienced. When I start things, especially yeah, I start a new idea. Um, right now, I have this Berlin Runner project, for example, and I put so much weight on every move that I make, because since I have nothing, I feel. Like I need to make huge changes in order to get somewhere. Um, so I, I think insanely a lot about every step that I take. I think insanely a lot about every dollar that I spend. Is this something that is going to bring me the maximum, um, like it's going to get me the maximum value for the money that I'm spending. Um, and that pressure that I'm putting on myself is just another form of exactly the same thing. Where if, if you come from a place where you already are stable and you feel worthy, then you can, it's much easier to be like, hey, I'm going to try and then I'm going to see how this works out. And that's part of the journey. And along the way, it'll all be okay because everything's not going to collapse if I, you know, if, I, if, I, if I make the wrong decision here. Um, yeah, so this, this pressure is also... I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm going to look back at all of these projects and laugh about how stressed I was about these decisions that I had to make. Like, should I invest a little bit of money more in programming or in marketing or in, you know, um, I think <laughs> I just want to like pause for a second. And I think I, one of the reasons why I'm like attracted to you as a human is because I think it, it's very difficult to be risk taking mm -hmm. because we are conditioned to be, we're conditioned with fear, mm -hmm. you know. Um, there's a clear path, why not just stay on that path? Yeah. And I think the fact that you just decide to spend time on all these experiments, essentially, mm -hmm. um, that you were tweaking stuff that you do, I mean, <laughs> babysitting dogs, Airbnb in your house, mm -hmm. all these things which, like I was immediately drawn to these things because I see someone who is just tweaking, doing these experiments, just seeing what kind of life they can, they can lead potentially changing things. Mm -hmm. I want to give you a lot of credit for that because it's, it, it's very inspirational for me to see. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure for a lot of people as well, 
Um, and that's like props to you, dude, um, because it's not an easy thing. And maybe it means you, 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 you don't know what happens when things stop. But the fact that you're doing things, that for me is, that is, that is wonderful. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's just a bit of a balancing thing, right? How do you, how, how can you be okay no matter what, you know, when all the things are full throttle and then when all the things stop? Because you are not those things. Like, if all of it stops, you're still Ben. You, it's not like you have, the idea of having nothing is subjective. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And you are, like, you created these things. You yeah. created this life. You can do it again. Like, if you, if this house burns down, if you own nothing material, True. I am 100% sure that you will have no problem building up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, maybe I need a crisis like that just to give me some perspective because I often feel like, fuck, everything that I did was for nothing. But I, um, <laughs> but I, I, it also, I think, um, rewinds back to this this thing that we were talking about before which is the spectrum of doers mm. versus knowers mm. and i think part of the reason i can just try random shit is because i'm so far on the do spectrum that i don't think about what could go wrong um so maybe mm. that's that's another another gift of being blind to my own inner workings i actually want to touch on that because i think um i think money is a money is a trap right it's like a it's a it's a honey trap okay. it's sweet because i just i speak from my own experience when i was working my job last year um i was making more money than i ever thought i'll make at this point in my life mm. and what i felt to reconcile with was that all this money comes at, comes with baggage, mm -hmm. you know, and that baggage was, that baggage was working in a very high stress job, mm -hmm. which at the end of the day, like that money, what I did with that money was actually just spend it to justify, not, yeah, to not be stressed, to not be stressed, going on holidays, yeah. having, you know, eating out at, at nice restaurants, um, spending, spending stuff in order to feel good um, about myself, yeah. you know, but again, failing to do the intrinsic work yeah. of like questioning why I'm here yeah. until the point I quit. That's when I'm like, oh, okay, dude, like yeah. <laughs> it's time to make a change yeah. because the money, it's not the point, yeah. you know? And again, it's like you said about being a prisoner of other people's expectations. I think that that's definitely something that we can all ask ourselves a little bit more hmm. is what the fuck do we really want? Right. And I feel pretty lucky because that's basically what made me move to Berlin. Mm. I had this, I had like you, I had this really, really great job in the U S well, I, I know I had a terrible job in the U S um, but it was really well paid. And it took me two years of hating every day of work before I was like, actually, I just want to spend time with my friends. And then I quit. And when I quit, they asked me, like, oh, you're doing so well. Like, what, you know, what, what could you, what more could you possibly want? Mm. And I was like, I would way rather be broke with and have time to spend with my friends. Mm. And if I had asked myself that at the beginning, I probably, maybe I could have saved myself that two years. 
I'm not sure. I mean, and maybe maybe you have to make those mistakes to realize. I, I fully believe so. Yeah. Um, but I think this is why the questions are important, right? Yeah. Questions you ask yourself, questions that... <laughs> <laughs> questions that people around you ask. Because, you know, if you, if you go through life and no one is willing to have those conversations, meaning ask the questions, then you will stay in that. You'll stay there. So go and buy this <laughs> card game. Project-closer.com <laughs> or at Project Closer. Because that has the questions that you're too afraid to ask yourself. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's also really powerful because what, what are we seeing with Closer is that, like, it's just words on paper. Mm. But so much can come up. People have thrown the cards back because they are too afraid to answer the question. People have sh started shaking when they're holding the cards to answer the question, all from words on paper. But it has the power to really potentially heal by being able to talk about things or just another um, door you close to, to stay even further away and to really distance yourself from your truth and the things that are actually facts. Um, but I think it's... Yeah, sure. It, it just it's it's really just about practicing it's about practicing having conversations like this yeah. doing this podcast yeah. like talking about things get this, it out this is exactly what i felt like when we're sitting here i've had i've had two weeks of therapy now and i'm like yeah it's okay but actually i feel like i just learned so much more in this 30 minutes talking to you and also talking to myself um and that's that's interesting i mean our friends are can be such an incredible mirror and and I always kind of felt like that about therapy, actually. I was like, yeah, I don't know if going to somebody who I don't know and don't trust can can be valuable, can be as valuable as me just being fucking vulnerable with my friends, right? And, and, and talking about things that are actually, yeah. So that's another thing that I would recommend to everybody out there is like, definitely go and find a professional to help you with your problems, but don't overlook the value of your friends. Um, and I think that the more that every vulnerable relationship that we have with somebody is a form of growth and learning and exactly what the point of therapy is. Yeah. Um, I think like, let's, so as, as I told you earlier today, when I'm going for this walk, like, sure, the questions are great, but it's really the, the space you hold and the safety of that space that the real stuff comes out. Because yeah. if I'm in a bar with you and I ask you, you know, um, what is a feeling that you fear the most? It might be a quick conversation. Maybe it only gets deep after we're looser because we had a couple of drinks. Mm. Um, but how do we do that all the time? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how can we make that light? Because by doing it all the time, it makes these conversations light. I've seen these questions, I don't know, hundreds of times so that they're, they're not freaky to me anymore. Yeah. Um, but they're still challenging yeah. as hell. But it's the lightness that comes. It's like, but the more we talk, the more you're going to do this podcast, you're going to feel like, yeah, okay, cool. Well, it's going to get a bit deeper. Like, what is deep? You know, your understanding of the depth, it also changes. Um, and that's, I think, going to be, that's how we live a life with, our, with um, a stronger sense of truth and a stronger sense of closer to what it means to be alive and, like, how do we connect with people? Because that's how you connect, man. Like, it's by having the real conversations. Like, I want to know what the fuck your fears are. I want to know what you're scared of. Why are you scared of those things? Because maybe I can help you. Yeah, I'm really excited to play this game again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you feel? I feel good. Um, I 
feel like that was a roller coaster and we went off on a lot of tangents but there were so many like mind exploding magical moments in there i'm really proud of you for trying stuff dude that's thank you like when like i think this one question that comes is a question in the game that um asks like the kind of people you surround yourself with. yeah exactly the question is what kind of people do you surround yourself with yeah and it's people that fucking try idiots that are trying to make trying to people do stuff. are too stupid to think enough about the consequences <laughs> yeah. and the time that they're wasting that they just it's about start it's stuff. just about doing it's about trying yeah. and testing like that is that's the shit maybe <laughs> <laughs> maybe it is it is maybe i'm it is. convinced anything anything great that has ever happened has been through being brave enough to try what do you think frank <laughs> frank has a lot to say <laughs> frank get on the mic here man all right hey i um i like as a last as a last thing i was i was thinking what's the what's the name of this podcast episode going to be I, ha- i had a couple ideas i thought um i thought i, I fuck berlin was one idea uh project closer um could be nice um something about <sighs> frank man i thought um um maybe home in berlin mm-hmm. what do you think what's like what's a, a, a clickbaity title that we can um that we can extract out of our conversation if you had to summarize our conversation in one short sentence why it's so hard why why it's difficult to feel at home in berlin as an Ooh, immigrant, as an immigrant. <laughs> straight up <laughs> <laughs> wow well, you ticked a lot of boxes with that one oh like and i think the, uh, an immigrant's perspective an immig- oh so man okay yeah i think that you've 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 ticked every if you want to go deep you go as an Im- asian immigrant's perspective cool all right <laughs> i guess we can um we can cut thanks a lot tristan <laughs> <laughs>